arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Someone there? Who is it? Look. Mitch, this isn't usual, is it? We've been out back looking at the chickens. Something seems to be wrong with them. There's nothing wrong with those chickens, Mitch. That's the damnest thing I ever saw. I don't know. It seemed to swoop down at you deliberately. Birds are not aggressive creatures, miss. They bring beauty into the world. It is mankind, rather, who insists upon making it difficult for life to exist upon this planet. I mean, birds just don't go around attacking people without no reason. You know what I mean? I think we're in real trouble. Huh? I don't know how this started or why, but I know it's here and we'd be crazy to ignore it. To ignore what? The bird war? Yes, the bird war, the bird attack play. Call it what you like. They're massing out there someplace and they'll be back. You can count on it. I keep telling you, this isn't a few birds. These are gulls, crows, swifts. I have never known birds of different species to flock together. The very concept is unimaginable. Why, if that happened, we wouldn't have a chance. Get yourselves guns and wipe them off the face of the earth. It's the end of the world. Thus said the Lord God unto the mountains and the hills and the rivers and the valleys. Behold, I, even I, shall bring a sword upon you, and I will devastate your high places. Doesn't it seem odd that they'd wait all that time to start a, a war against humanity? What do you think they were after? I think they were after the children. For what purpose? To kill them. Hitchcock's The Birds is terrifying. It's terrifying not just because of the birds and what they do, which is pretty brutal. It's terrifying because you're just waiting for the birds to attack. It's that threat, that threat of injury, that threat of attack, that threat of pain. And that's what I'm trying to impart here. There are no birds in Exchange House, but there is a threat. And we don't know who is that threat. Maddie is with McCabe at the Exchange House a man that she now knows had beat a man to death. The cell phone network is down. Maddie will hold McCabe at bay with a knife, and then there will be an attack and a chase with a killer right behind. Any one of her suspects, her husband, McCabe, or Raymond Snowden, could be the man trying to kill her. Back into the storm, and the pursuit as Exchange House comes to a deadly finish. Exchange House by R.P. Fitton Chapter 20 The mantle's glass clock chimed at 6.30. The storm-lit yard still remained empty 15 minutes later. Maddie peered through the spindles. 
An image of the counter-radio was imprinted across her mind for at least ten seconds after the last flash. She leaned back against the stairway wallpaper, the window casing touching her shoulder as the cannonade rocked the house. If only she had access to a human voice, someone telling her about this storm and when it would end. A yellow, dull light swept through the striped paper above her. She reached over her left shoulder and pulled herself back up to the window. The sky exploded with multiple lightning charges, one zipping into the woods near the graveyard hill, and a prodigious advancing blast shook the house. Steady, brighter lights appeared down the lane as lightning popped like flashbulbs on the walls. She leaped down the stairs and staggered across the reading room. Her foot caught the grave rubbing. She slid back and fell on the floorboards. Headlights now shined through the side windows as she lifted her aching hand from the bloodied rubbing. She pushed the paper aside and scrambled to the front door. McCabe's truck wipers swished waves of water off the windshield as he skidded near the garage, sending puddle water spraying over the side lawn. Although she could not see him, he was not the same man who had left this morning. She slid the knife under the reading room sofa cushion. In the headlight's glare, McCabe pushed the gray, slicker hood over his head and trod through the driveway mud. He slowed and adjusted his hood and then looked left. She moved closer to the window as he took several steps into the rain and studied the power line now whipping in the wind. Maddie walked quickly to the front door and pulled it open. McCabe's dark eyes were intense inside his vinyl hood. He stomped his boots on the rug. Are you all right, Maddie? Maddie nodded once but rushed by him to the whipping rain across the yard. The spontaneous lightning bolts flashed in segments across the cavernous clouds. McCabe's boots splatted in the water behind her. He yanked her around as the ensuing thunder broke. You want to die? What? I said, do you want to die? That lightning is all over the place. It just hit a tree near the road on the way in. I tried calling you. She yelled into the wind. I want to know one thing, McCabe. Why did you lie about those mower blades? McCabe stared at her as the rain wet his hair. He had the same look the first night he left in a huff. Stanley couldn't find them. I thought they had been misplaced or fallen, so I... Her hair was soaked now, and more lightning hit near the incinerator as she turned toward the garage door. So you decided what was best for me. Well, I don't need anyone doing that. Not you, not my husband. Your husband? Right. Let's get back inside, Maddie. No. Did you open that garage door and don't lie to me? McCabe turned. No, I had to go to Portland. Stanley was supposed to stay up here until I arrived. I didn't open that door. He left. McCabe nodded. Let's get inside the house. It smells good. He held her arm, but she ripped it away and stomped toward the garage. She slid in the mud and the rain smacked her neck like a water hose on full power. McCabe chased after her as she slipped again and the bandage pulled off her hand. Under the flickering clouds, he grabbed her from behind and yelled through the torrent, This is a bad storm! We need to get out of here! Out here you can really get killed! Good! It'll save somebody the trouble! She stepped from the puddle's mud-slick shore and approached the cracked open garage door. Bending down, she grasped the wet and dirty metal support and hoisted the door upward along its track. The truck's headlights cast bold shadows up the plaster walls and the rear storage bins. 
McCabe stood across the puddle as she lifted a sheet from the table near some empty boxes. The two newly sharpened blades, steel edges beveled, were side by side atop a stack of books. Maddie grabbed the dull sides and ran back in the drain-wrenched opening and held up both blades. McCabe now forded the puddle in his work boots. She was not sure what he had in mind. Let me see those. Oh, no! She darted out of the garage before he could turn, and she sprinted toward the cliffs. Her clothes were soaked, and she was fearful of the height. She waited for the newly formed lightning and then hurled the blades into the storm. The surf, wind, and rain masked whatever noise they produced as they fell into the tumultuous sea. Her back to the cliffs, she looked for McCabe but did not see him. With the storm raging, she shielded the rain with her arms and moved toward the house's storm-lit facade. The truck wipers continuously swept the glass, and the headlights shined into the woods. McCabe! The front door was still open behind the screen. I want to know about my husband, McCabe. He was out here. I know damn well he was out here. She languished about twenty yards from the porch and edged her way closer, picking up her pace. She climbed the steps and crossed the rain-drenched porch. She forcefully pulled open the screen, but as she entered the reading room, McCabe, holding a round green candle, appeared from behind the kitchen's bay window and she screamed, Why do you think I'm trying to kill you? Because you lied about the blades, she said in a shrill voice, scraping her throat as she backed up, and somebody cut the wires. Maddie, the power is up because the storm pulled down your outside line. No, the phone line, I saw it. It was cut. McCabe looked down at her hand and then at the dinner half served on the table. She pulled out the knife from beneath the sofa cushion. What are you doing? Protecting myself. I want the keys to your truck. McCabe smiled and took a few steps toward her. I don't know what's going on inside your head, Maddie, but you've got this all wrong. The keys, McCabe. Listen, I'll get my cell phone. You can call anybody you want. His mighty hands were only ten feet away from the knife. Then she looked at the useless old black phone and thought about the chiming and the hiss. So, that's how you did it. Did what? Look, I'm sorry about what happened to your wife. I'm sorry that she died. Mrs. Preble talks too much. You called me on your cell phone from that church or the graveyard outside of town at the bend. McCabe winced in the candlelight and shook his head, but kept his distance from the knife blade. Well, that's bullshit. I never called you. You know what you are? You're crazy. Your husband leaves you, you come out here all alone, and now you think somebody's trying to kill you. Again, he moved one step forward, but she thrust the knife and he retreated. You're in this with that suspender-strapped husband of mine. What did you say? I said you and my husband are probably in this together. Give me the keys to your truck. Keys are in the truck. The suspenders. McCabe lowered his head, thinking about something, and then looked around the room toward the mantel. He faced her in the candlelight. I think I saw him. Maddie's stomach jolted and she almost dropped the knife. What? Come on. Don't play games. McCabe placed the candle on the mantel and slid one of the captain's chairs across the reading room floorboards. In his customary way, he straddled the base, resting his arms on the back. I don't know anything about the other roads other than what I told you. I walk to the surf side. I never go in there. It's a dive. 
This good-looking, well-dressed guy, shirt and tie, he's wearing suspenders. He's sitting at the bar doing boilermakers and typing something into a laptop. You know when you see a newspaper picture that makes no sense? Well, this picture, the guy with money typing into a laptop, made no sense. I mean, this place smells. The liquor is watered down, and all the dregs in town come in here. Then why did you... I own the building. Sometimes I wander in just to be sure the place isn't going to burn down or nobody's performing any illicit acts in the corner. Maddie sat on the second step but kept the knife in both hands. So I sit down. The guy says nothing for at least ten minutes, and I nurse a beer. Finally, I lean over and try to see what's so damn important on that computer screen. He's working on a sales layout. He tells me as he chugs the liquor that he's this big deal salesman and they send him all over the country. Maddie, Maddie, until you mentioned the suspenders, I really didn't know. Cave, my husband's tie clasp is out there on the side lawn. Cave nodded slowly. His tie clasp, and I'm sure he's out here right now, and I'm sure he's been trying to get inside the house. Maddie stood, the knife handle enveloped her right hand. Let's go to the truck. We're out of here, storm or no storm. I'll spend the night here again. Oh, McCabe, she said, emitting sounds between laughing and crying. You are so good. If you hadn't beaten a man to death, you'd be an A number one trial lawyer. McCabe lifted his buttocks from the chair and slowly pushed it aside with his muddy boot. No, I would have been a prosecutor. And you shouldn't be making snap judgment about things you and Mrs. Preble know nothing about. She raised the knife as McCabe took a step forward. He stopped and shook his head vigorously. Fifteen years ago, I prosecuted a guy from Ruggles, Oklahoma. A guy whose mouth got him in trouble all his life. I really don't want to hear this, McCabe. I want your keys. His name was Arthur Stearns. I successfully put him behind bars in a military prison for 20 years. He ran drugs through Costa Rica, drugs that went all over the base and out to a local school. An 11-year-old girl OD'd, and this lowlife, McCabe's upper lip curled, and he spoke through his gritted teeth. He taunted me. I can hear him blaming the kid, saying she was a little slut anyways, telling me she was better off dead. When he made the charge that I was one of his customers, and how I sold dope, don't you ever hear about sticks and stones? McCabe's mouth opened as if he were slowly pulling in the moist air and his jaw jutted outward. He closed his eyes briefly and slowly moved his head. He testified in court that he was involved with my wife. So what? It was true, and I knew it. He looked at me, made eye contact, and laughed. I couldn't contain myself. I went right over to the table. Papers went flying. The military police rushed in from the side, but I had scaled the witness stand. My fist was cocked, and I swung harder than I had ever swung at anybody in my life. I hit him two inches above his right eye in the temple area. He was thrown against the petition, and he was out. He never woke up. He died in a military hospital two days later. I was busted, and that's as far as it went. I never served any time, but I could never do what I always wanted to do. I'm real sorry, but I want to leave now. I want to go to the airport, and I want to go home. I have an automatic rifle in the trunk. 
No, I really want to leave. McCabe nodded. All right, let me help you get your things together. Maddie thrust out the knife. No, we're going out to the truck now. I'll send for my things later. That's the way you want it. That's the way I want it. McCabe shuffled slowly toward the door. Lightning lit the woods, but the heavy downpours had temporarily abated. He pushed on the screen door. Colder air surrounded her as she moved with him onto the porch. I have this knife right behind you, McCabe. You don't need to do that, Maddie. I'll be the judge of that. She caught the door with her other hand and crossed the porch. He used his laptop and cellular to make reservations. It was a sleek black cell phone with gold keys. You can check with Iggy Newton, the bartender. I'm sure he was leaving on a flight out of Portland. I left him a half an hour later. He was in a card game, but he was leaving on a late flight, Maddie. You drive, McCabe. Once on the brick walk, he moved toward the truck. You're reading things the wrong way. Her lips pursed, and she gave McCabe at least a ten-foot leeway. He stepped into the puddle and pulled himself through the open door. Fog layers paddled the bay in marshes, but across the sea a new round of thunder edged westward. He turned the key from the auxiliary and shut off the wipers. The truck engine choked. In the overhead light, McCabe furrowed his brow and twisted the key again. The powerful engine kicked as if it wanted to turn over, but could not make the final ignition. McCabe, shouted Maddie, gripping the knife with both hands again. Now it sounds like a distributor problem. Don't bullshit me! You want to try? He asked from the seat. He left the keys in the ignition and again put his work boot in the puddle. The engine is wet, Maddie. I am not going to be stuck out here. McCabe winced and fiddled near the latch hood and lifted it open. He jiggled something inside before returning to the truck, and he took a flashlight from behind the front seat. He stuck the mobile phone into his jeans back pocket. Maddie grasped the knife as McCabe shined the bright flashlight into the engine depths and leaned over the fender. Try it. What? Try cranking it over. Maddie climbed into the cab. She placed her hands on the enlarged, intimidating steering wheel. McCabe's muffled voice came through the engine wall. Turn it! She rotated the key toward McCabe. Again, the engine rolled over, cranked but did not catch. Through the open hood, he moved around the truck. She took the knife and jumped outside, slipping in the loose gravel beneath the puddle water. The cold wetness spread across her jeans and chilled her skin. She stood and held out the knife as McCabe appeared near the fender. Stay back, McCabe. Maddie, you've got me all wrong. Get on your cell phone. I'm calling Belson's. They'll send out a truck. No, I want a cab out here. I don't care how much it costs. I've got friends who will come out here, maybe even the Prebles. They seem to like to stir up trouble. Maddie splashed through the puddle and stood on the grass. Call a cab out here. McCabe tightened his forehead and pulled out the cell phone. Each individual tone sounded as he punched in the number. He raised the phone to his ear but seemed baffled, cleared the number and redialed. Again, with the phone cocked to his ear, he shook his head. Tower must be out. Oh, come on, McCabe. Then try the damn thing yourself. She stood motionless with the knife as the rain built on her brow and drained down her cheeks. You tell me, what the hell are we supposed to do? Wait it out. He pushed off the lights and yanked the keys and then closed the door. 
In the lightning burst, he passed her without making eye contact. He climbed the porch stairs, popping on his flashlight as he entered the house and the screen door slammed quickly. The jagged lightning crossed the distant bay skies and with the rain again battering her hair, she started back to the house. Water dripped from the knife blade. In the reading room, McCabe's flashlight stood upright on the table, casting a white glow on the ceiling, and a wide base candle burned atop the white fireplace mantel. She opened the screen door as more thunder rolled up the cliffs. McCabe carried a long red taper and the flame flickered from the kitchen to the table. He dripped a pink wax on one of the china plates, building up a sufficient base to insert the candle. Then he found additional candles in the kitchen drawers, lit the wicks, and placed them strategically around the downstairs rooms. Wavy shadows flickered over the walls as he returned to the table. I have a portable radio in the truck. Maddie stood between the table and the door as he grabbed the flashlight and returned outside. She wanted to change her wet clothes, but the food gave her hunger pains. The rain hit the windows again as she stepped into the kitchen. The potato pan and the covered beans were still hot. The warm chicken vapors massaged her face as she opened the oven door. The screen door spring stretched and raucous country music from McCabe's tiny black portable radio swept into the house. He closed the inside door and brought the radio to the counter, but gazed at the yellow rose as he passed the table. Then he removed his cell phone again and punched in three digits. I'll see if I can get the carrier direct. Maddie breathed erratically as she stared at the open rose in the glass and then sat at the table. McCabe opened the kitchen cabinets and pulled out more glasses. He filled them with tap water and set them on the table. She raised the cold water to her lips and soothed her parched throat. I thought cell phones used microwaves. They do, but the transmitter or the computers must be down. This is a bad storm. McCabe set the phone next to his plate and put his hands on his hips. Well, we might as well eat. McCabe, I just want to get out of here. He took the aluminum pan handle in one hand and a large spoon in the other. Well, you sure beat the hell out of these potatoes. Maddie said nothing and looked through the candlelight toward the garage and the truck, still blitzed by the storm's light. Her itchy, wet jeans were uncomfortable and her hair had a greasy, unwashed feeling. McCabe served dinner, placing the vegetables on the china after he carved the chicken and set the long, serrated knife in the sink. He sat next to his phone and then looked toward Maddie. Well, I'm not going to eat, McCabe. I, another thunderhead, interrupted her and lightning flashed over the truck and garage. The new but still intense band of showers crossed the sea as McCabe started eating. Her plate was empty and the knife remained in her hand under the table. Once the storm had passed, she would leave for Portland and head back home. Chapter 21 and Block Island. Barometric readings from the low-pressure system have dipped below 29 millibars, and rain accumulations in some areas have exceeded 4 inches. The authorities are requesting if you don't have to go out, don't. Local reports of washouts in the lower-lying areas have made driving hazardous. Power lines are down, and an estimated 350,000 customers are without electricity from the effects of the storm. McCabe chewed the chicken slowly and sipped the water. 
Maddie had only nibbled at her food. He cleared his throat and glanced out the bay window toward the lightning over the cliffs. Well, I've never seen anything like this. When I was a kid, maybe, a few hurricanes. The odd thing is they thought the storm would go south. Maybe Cape Cod would get part of it. I should have exchanged a house there. She felt the knife handle solidly in place below her right thigh. Well, it would have made my life a lot simpler. The candlelight softened his brown eyes. You think you would have come back to Rexford if you hadn't killed that man? No. She raised her brows and nodded. I had a promising career and would have gone to the top. I knew my job and I did it well. What I tell you is fact. You lied about the blades. Well, we won't get into that. And you didn't bother to tell me that you had this extended conversation with my husband right in town. I didn't know he was your husband. It's purely circumstantial. Oh, don't get cozy with me, counselor. He never left. John never left Rexford. He's not in this house. I checked. And he wasn't in the garage. But he could have taken those blades unless you did. I don't know what happened with those blades, Maddie. But I'm concerned his tie clasp was on the lawn. J.S., right on the side lawn. He squinted and set down a full fork of potato as he looked at the rose. Listen, let's check the truck again. She stood and placed her palms on the linen cloth. Oh, now you're concerned, aren't you, McCabe? You're starting to think about the roses. You thought Rialto sent them, but now you have your doubts and other things you're not telling me about. If I can't get that truck going, we're just going to have to wait it out. Oh, sure. Maddie turned again, squinting as the storm pounded the house. An instant image of the truck appeared with every lightning burst. McCabe paused, his dark eyes fixed on her as he thought. Then he looked out the reading room window. He scraped his chair across the vinyl as he stood and tossed his napkin on the tablecloth. As he walked by her prescient painting of the bay, he stopped and studied the canvas still leaned against the wall. Then he grabbed his slicker, opened the front door, and headed outside. Maddie, the knife in hand, sprang from the chair. The shower spray hit the water-covered screen. She tapped the water squares loose from the screen as McCabe's truck door closed. Maybe the engine would turn over. Come on, McCabe! Through the rain cascade, the hollow engine cough sounded like an emphysema patient. McCabe tried a second time. A loud grinding whine accompanied the engine's impotent attempt to start. A grim-faced McCabe flew out of the cab, ankle deep in the puddle, and slammed the door. He crossed through the angled rain sheets. Forget it, Maddie. Listen, we're just going to have to wait this out until cell service gets back. He ran across the porch, opened the screen door, and lifted his mushy work boots onto the throw rug. You can connect the outside telephone wires. McCabe untied his boots and pried out each foot. He peeled off his soaked socks and let them fall onto the spreading dribble on the wood. I'm not going to stand out there by electrical connections and wet feet with lightning bolts all around. Maddie stared at his bare feet. Then try the cell. He didn't look at her as he returned to the table and started slicing through the chicken. Lifting a glass of water to his lips, he turned to her. You know something? You're really starting to piss me off. She walked back to the table, knife held downward, and sat in her seat. For a few moments, she looked at the half-eaten food as a wordy ballad rambled through the radio's small speaker. You go to church, McCabe? What kind of a question is that? 
poignant one. No, how's that for a poignant answer? He gulped some more water and then pointed at her. I can understand your being upset with what happened at the surfside. Frankly, I wouldn't change the fact that I didn't tell you anything. He got up from the table and slid out his cell phone on the way to the bay window. She closed her eyes as the melodic tones blended into the country vocals. Why would you ask me about church? Maddie really didn't want to answer him and sat quietly. She could see the same look on his face as when she told him she wouldn't go to brisky whiskeys with him. I guess I want to know if a man who beat another man to death would be in good conscience to go to church. My conscience is clear. My intent was not to murder the man. She held the knife securely under her leg as the rain drummed out a continuing cadence. Well, what was your intent? Pain. He put the phone back in his pocket. So much for high tech. I wanted to hurt the bastard, all right? It's not for me to say. McCabe laughed and lifted his chin upward, crossed his arms over his blue jersey. Oh, yeah, not for you to say. You seem to be in judgment of every other aspect of my life. When you were a kid, growing up here in Rexford, did I ever go around beating up other kids? Is that the next... Yeah, that's the next question. Another thundercrack rattled the window behind him and he looked over his shoulder. Then, with his hands folded, he peered through the flickering candlelight. I had my share of fights. I played varsity sports. I was pretty good, but no more aggressive than anybody else. When he moved toward the table, she squeezed the knife handle. He turned the chair around as he had before. I didn't evidence murderous propensities, if that's what you mean. Don't get angry with me. I didn't kill anybody. No, you didn't. I don't like your condescending attitude. The hell kind of childhood did you have? Brought up in Phoenix, were you? No. Moretta, New Mexico. My father was in the service. Wasn't around much. McCabe nodded his head. Oh, now I see. Oh, I know John fits my father's profile. She stood, holding the knife against her wet jeans. Why was his tie tack in the grass by the volleyball net, McCabe? McCabe winced as he thought. Maybe he did come out here before he left. The guy made reservations to get out of here on his laptop. You knew I was having marital troubles, so you invited me to Brisky Whiskey's. Yeah, right. But I'll tell you, I wondered why you're out here alone, and maybe the thought crossed my mind that you might be vulnerable. I liked you, okay? I liked the way you looked when you came up the steps to my office. So what? Maddie closed her eyes for a second. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what happened in the courtroom. I'm sorry that your wife is dead. And I'm sorry I'm out here right now. Oh, I don't want you to feel sorry for me, Maddie, he said, rising from the chair. That's the point. I wanted us to go out and have a good time. No past, no future, just some dancing and fun. He waddled in his bare feet. You can stop right there. No, you stop. All I did was ask you out. You're the one who said that the telephone and the electrical wires are cut. You're the one who heard the tree branches scraping and claimed the door lock was ajar. I secured this whole frigging house with new locks and bolts, and you stand there holding a knife, branding me as an attacker, when I don't even think there is an attacker. I don't know why the tie clasp was out there. Oh, the roses are in here. Your mind's been playing tricks on you, Maddie. 
You're right. You shouldn't have come out here. Isolation is not a thing you need right now. Maddie's lungs moved faster and her voice shook. Oh, no. You're an expert at making an argument, and you're right. You would have risen to the top legally, but I'm not buying this argument, McCabe. Somebody tried to break that deadbolt. Sneak in here and kill me. It could have been, John. I don't know. You can probably argue your way out of anything, McCabe. He shook his head, walked to the counter, and held the edge. If I could get out of here right now, I'd be gone in a shot. Gone. And I'd leave you and your troubles behind. Maddie shuffled across the floorboards, her sneakers cold and damp. The lightning lit the sky, but the thunder had subsided, and the rain continued. She moved closer, keeping her eye on McKay by the radio as she leaned against the glass. He ran across the porch, opened the screen door, and lifted his mushy work boots onto the throw rug. You can connect the outside telephone wires. McCabe untied his boots and pried out each foot. He peeled off his soaked socks and let them fall onto the spreading dribble on the wood. I'm not going to stand out there by electrical connections and wet feet with lightning bolts all around. She moved closer, keeping her eye on McCabe by the radio as she leaned against the glass. The break in the storm might allow her to leave. The radio announcer spoke of additional outages and the last bands of showers passing through. Good. That's it. We're out of here. McCabe spoke in a lower, less angry voice. It's not that easy, Maddie. If the storm is over, I might be able to connect the phone. More lightning flashed and she moved away from the window. Would that give you the confidence that I'm not going to kill you? Maddie reached the edge of the vinyl floor. Maybe. The music started again and McCabe folded his arms. Why didn't your family move with your father? She studied his bulky forearms and wide shoulders and then stared into his eyes before she spoke. It was just my mother and me, aunts and uncles. Wasn't much of a damn marriage. You're worse than my therapist. Now therapists are blowhards. They make a living at giving advice on minimal facts. She stepped onto the vinyl floor. They must have rammed therapy down your throat after, you, after I killed the son of a bitch, sure. Somehow, he deserved to die. I didn't set out to kill him, but he got his. So, your mother, what did she do while your father was away? Played the martyr, painted. I had the studio she never had, but I put myself in the identical situation. Fool that I am. McCabe moved away from the counter like a swimmer, pushing off the pool cement and into the water. Maddie again tightened her grip on the knife handle and tracked around the table as she sat in his reverse chair. I had two good parents, played with my brothers, and knew all the kids in town. I can't put myself in your situation, but I don't think you're a fool. We're just human beings, Maddie, full of emotions and denying half the reality around us. The other half we embellish. Your therapist may have categorized you into some neat little clinical formula. That's their job. They're the fools. And human beings, we're going to make mistakes every day. Some large, some inconsequential. Once you realize that, you're golden. It's dealing with your screw-ups, that's the important thing. Maddie moved her feet apart, stood at the end of the table with the knife dangling. You going to send me a bill? He grinned and slowly raised his brows. Only for the locks. McCabe, are you convinced, no bullshit, that John didn't come back here? 
He may have come out here and he may have called the Rialto about the roses, but he's long gone. We can verify all that. He reached for his mobile phone. Maddie covered her mouth briefly, watching McCabe's face as he listened. He shook his head. It's never been down like this. The whole network must be down. Listen, if that rain is going to stop, I'm hiking back to the highway. Two miles isn't that far. Somebody will be driving on that road. McCabe looked at his phone and then up at Maddie. Well, first we try the truck and then the phone lines. Agreed. I'm going upstairs and putting on some dry clothes. Do you want any socks? McCabe, still staring at the phone, stood at attention. No. He leaned toward the bay window. They're right. It is letting up out there. Okay, so you're going to try the truck first. Well, if it doesn't start, I've got tools. As long as I'm not going to get a lightning bolt up my... I'd prefer clear conditions if I'm going to be working around those wires. McCabe grabbed his flashlight as if he were bowling and slid it across the floor. Here, you'll need this. Thank you. She moved sideways across the vinyl, unable to release the knife, and as she moved by the reading room candles, her form cast a towering shadow over the wallpaper. McCabe had his phone on the table and had popped up the front panel as she backed up the stairs. At the octagon window, she pushed her thumb against the flashlight switch and projected a white beam into the storage room's blue paper upstairs. She could not slow her accelerating heartbeat as she climbed to the top. The tub's shadow moved as she walked deliberately into the bedroom, closed the door, and turned the lock. Throwing the knife on the bed quilt, she ran to the dresser and pulled open the top drawer. Her eyes darted between the locked door and the front window shades. She kicked off the sneakers. One hit the wall and the other disappeared alongside the bed. Quickly, she unzipped her jeans and pulled the wet denim over her bare legs. She ripped off her top and panties, but before she could take out more clothes from the dresser, she heard McCabe's engine sputter out front. She hurried to the front window and pulled back the shade, but she only saw the vague outline of the truck. McCabe had tried to start the vehicle several times with no luck. He stepped back from the truck and walked along the porch to the side of the house. Maddie moved by the bed and back to the dresser. She slipped into another pair of panties and threw on a soft fleece sweatshirt over her half-dried hair. A new set of designer jeans, not for hiking, was in the bottom drawer. She pulled up dry knee socks over her legs and then took the jeans. Before putting them on, secure with the feeling that McCabe might somehow reconnect the phone, she brought the flashlight to the medicine cabinet adjacent to the bed. Her ghostly, half-lit face was drawn, and she ran cold water, splashing it over her hands and cheeks. The knife wound still stung, but the coolness eased some of the fatigue and tension in her muscles. She shut off the water and moved into the darkened bedroom. In the low light, she reached for the jeans. Ripping off the labels, she stepped into the soft, snug fabric. In the closet, she took out another set of sneakers and spun the bow knots quickly. Holding the flashlight in her other hand, she moved by the bed and unlocked the tub room door. She shined the light past the tub to the top of the staircase. The portable radio's musical twang echoed downstairs. She shuffled past the tub. At the top of the stairs, she bent down, stretching the jeans. The candles flickered in the cooler air, filtering into the house. McCabe must have left the door open. She started down the stair runner and gazed at the kitchen clock, hands still frozen in time. One of the reading room's wider candles had blown out, and McCabe's wet socks were gone from the floorboards. 
The rain was over, but the fog sunk heavy over the area, and an occasional thunder boomer sounded somewhere across the ocean. She turned to the phone. Maybe she could contact the outside world and leave, but first she would have to find McCabe. Goosebumps again covered her chilled arms as she crossed the reading room and waited at the door before she pushed it open. The truck, surrounded by water, was closed and empty. Maddie folded her arms for warmth as she tiptoed over the porch floorboards. Water remnants dripped in globs from soaked trees and branches. Once at the balustrade, she held the wet rail and shined the flashlight around the clapboards and utility box. McCabe, where the hell are you? The flashlight produced a foggy glow across the fallen volleyball net, but was not strong enough to illuminate the woods. McCabe! She slid along the rail, past the porch support, while staring at the truck. At the stairs, she moved down the walk, but tried not to get her fresh sneakers wet, maneuvering around the shrunken puddle, and placed her hand firmly on the truck's chrome door handle. She pushed the handle and opened the door. The overhead illuminated the empty vinyl seat and the long dash. When she closed the door, the sound echoed off the garage and porch. From inside the house, the telephone's long, escalating ring reached a crescendo across the yard. The darkened house facade succumbed to the fog, nudging into the yard as the second ring heightened the goosebumps migrating up her legs and arms. She faced the junction box and started across the mud. The phone tapered off as she flew up the porch stairs. She grasped the door handle and stared through the screen at the bulky phone, shaking as it rang again on the small table. Gritting her teeth, she whipped open the door and raced across the reading room. She ripped the receiver off the hook and placed it against her ear. The line was clear, but she heard someone cover the phone. Who is this? Again, something moved over the receiver and tapping started again. Leave me alone. Maddie swung the phone back on the hook. Even with the fog, she could hike to the highway, but she needed the knife and had left it upstairs on the quilt. She aimed the flashlight beam upstairs and moved quickly this time. She had taken two steps and the phone's ring stopped her. Turning, she stared down at the phone and knew she would immediately head upstairs, get the knife, and leave. But she reached over the banister. Again, something dragged over the mouthpiece, and the skipping patter continued in the background. The police will get you, John, if you have the incredible stupidity to come back here and pull this stunt. The receiver dropped from her trembling hands and settled back on the hook. She grabbed the banister and shined the light as she ran upward. She slipped into the bath, but the flashlight grazed the tub, and the room blackened as the batteries bounced across the tiles, her eyes adjusting to the darkness near the open bedroom door. Once inside, she saw no sign of the knife when she reached the bed. She slid her hands along the quilt, certain she had left it on top. She gazed over the dresser top toward the medicine cabinet and sink. Maybe she should have just run for the woods. She stopped when she rounded the bed, and the murky light forms assumed new shapes and the alarm clock's persistent ticking bothered her. She walked toward the bureau. A black cellular phone, gold key still visible in the low light, lay next to the alarm clock on the dresser's cotton cloth. She backed up but hit something solid. A tightening wetness enveloped her neck and a cold knife blade moved under her fleece jersey. Her air supply strained, and she clawed at her neck and swung her elbows. She tried to bite the arm locked around her neck. With no air entering her lungs, she panicked and choked. Somehow, she swung the heel of her sneaker upward, 
connecting into her attacker's pants. Air rushed into her lungs as she careened over the bed and onto the floor. She moved like a crab toward the tub, rolling into the hall. This time she leaped forward and bounced down the stair runner. Her attacker crossed the second floor as she crashed into the reading room. Once on her feet, she sprinted past her painting of the bay, now slashed to shreds. She crashed through the screen door, pivoted on the slippery porch, and vaulted the railing. In the darkness, she slid over the grass, pushing up her fleece shirt and covering her stomach with a chilled wetness. The screen door opened behind her as she scrambled across the lawn toward the volleyball net. She darted across the muddy, fog-enveloped drive and entered the woods near the maintenance shed. He had seen her flee. She stopped on the water-packed leaves and backtracked along the shed. With her hands pressed against the shingles and the sporadic lightning, Maddie squinted around the corner. Across the dirt, a moving shadow cut the dim fog and squished in the mud. She kept her hands against the shingles, sliding diagonally as she ran the soft leaves and into the woods. John, or somebody with his cell phone, was trying to kill her. Raymond Snowden's drunken countenance overlapped the foggy thicket like an enlarged face on a drive-in movie screen. Maybe McCabe had set this up with John or Snowden. The attacker could retrace his steps around the building and she would face death in minutes. She looped through the mist up the hill. The bushes scraped her new jeans and arms. Her legs kicked back and her arms gyrated as she broke into a full run. The graveyard trail eluded her and she feared that she was moving in a circle. She leaned against a wide, moist tree trunk, her ribs expanding and contracting. Although she thought herself in the best of shape, a pain ripped through her side. She heard no one in the woods as she listened closely. The maintenance shed and the house were obscured by the fog churning inward from the ocean, and the remaining moisture dripped from the trees onto the mushy leaves. Pushing herself from the tree trunk, she again moved deeper into the woods. Where the bushes ended, she stumbled onto the graveyard trail, but someone shuffled through the wet leaves and twigs broke down the trail toward the house. She leaped over the rocks and dug her sneakers into the moistened soil. Several times she fell, but disregarded her scraped hands and aching wound as she climbed the knoll. In the damp mist, the two granite posts opened to the cemetery, but moved on the rocks behind her. Air rushed into her expanding lungs as she darted into the fog. The gravestones appeared like ghosts, moving between dimensions. All the physical training back in Phoenix, working out and running through the streets, might allow her to outrun her attacker down the Padrick connector. Sweat formed a stinging ring around her neck, where someone had tried to choke her in the upstairs bedroom. She ran her fingers over the chafed skin. When she had gone outside to check for McCabe, either he or someone slipped back into the house and called her from the cell phone on the second floor. She had gone up the stairs into the killer's lair. She ducked behind one of the stone monoliths, ran her fingers over the wet polished granite and listened. Stinging salty sweat continued to irritate her soft skin as she caught her breath. She tilted her head and listened but only heard the water dripping from the trees. Escaping back to the house would be smart, but the jaunt might take 15 minutes in the fog and another half hour to the highway. It was just a matter of staying cool, moving smartly, and maintaining her distance. In the dense air, a rifle crack broke the chilled silence. She dove behind a marble stone. On her belly, she slithered through the thick, damp grass, shielded by the stones, 
but she was unsure where the next shot would hit. She pictured McCabe's open truck door and the automatic rifle tucked behind the seat. She lay on her back, unable to discern the killer's movements, but she knew he lurked out there somewhere in the graveyard. As more fog crept up the hill, her banging heart assured her she was still alive. Only a few feet away, the killer's feet compressed the soggy grass. Maddie froze, not fully breathing, and looked at an indefinite shadow traversing the fog. With each successive step, she expected to see a rifle barrel pointed at her head. But when he passed, she gazed around the surrounding stones. Getting back to the house trail was paramount to her survival. She again crawled along the wet grass. Using her elbows as leverage, she veered from the killer's path toward where she perceived the house trail. Outlines of trees and bushes formed across an open, grassy stretch ahead. She stumbled to her feet, sprinted forward, and saw bushes and the stone foundation of Padford's house. Once through the bushes, she rolled over the foundation, holding the stones tightly as she dropped inside. She crossed the misty cellar hole and positioned herself between the cornerstones and the compacted dirt floor. The thunder, now distant, rolled inland, and the air again grew heavy. Sporadic raindrops hit her face. She closed her body into a tiny ball and scanned the gray glow above her. Ten minutes, and then a half an hour passed, but she was afraid to crawl out. Not knowing her attacker only made it worse. Icy air chilled her wet face and arms. She stood and pulled herself up over the foundation stones. The steady drizzle saturated her hair and jersey, but halfway up the foundation she heard someone move above her and she stopped. The scraping grew closer. She lowered herself back into the hole and compacted her body into the corner again. She clearly saw a foggy silhouette of a rifle and a human form move along the foundation top. He turned abruptly and then jumped into the hole, crushing an aluminum can. Running would give her way a position and the rifle fire would mow her down. She methodically lifted her foot, but she lost her footing and fell back. Instinctively, she rolled to her left as four orange flashes pierced the fog and shook the foundation. She shifted her shaking hands along the dark floor, scraping the weeds and the broken bottles. He paced the dirt, kicked the stones and bottles, but said nothing to give away his identity. Ever cognizant of the loaded rifle, Maddie wrapped her fingers around the wet edges of a broken stick or board, pulling it slowly toward her. She would not get out unless she disabled him. Several stones were scattered between the sporadic glass blades. As she extended her legs from her crouched position, she grasped the stones and straightened her long body. The rain pattered against her head as more thunder advanced from the sea. One lightning flash would reveal her location. Taking a deep breath, she lobbed the stones back into the corner and cocked the board. When the rocks hit, the rifle's orange blast appeared no more than ten feet away. Maddie lunged forward and swung the wood, impacting so hard it stung her hands. As he dropped to the dirt floor, she raced through the, the foggy blur, scaled the foundation wall, and crawled into the taller grass. The murky gravestones appeared in the rain and fog. She didn't look back, and she hurtled across the rain-laced cemetery slope. Depending on how much she had injured him, she might get to a phone now and call for help. She reached the woods and slid along the bushes until she found the granite post. 
The leafy branches shielded her from the steady rain as she negotiated the slippery leaves and rounded rocks. With luck, she would have several minutes, but more than likely an allotted number of seconds. Chapter 22 Pacing herself, Maddie emerged from the woods and sprinted past the garage. McCabe's truck was undisturbed, the rain pummeling the hood and roof. She grabbed the porch support, catapulting herself across the wet boards as she ripped open the screen door and raced through the reading room. When she lifted the heavy black receiver, a clear, strong dial tone reverberated in her ear. She dialed the operator. Her limbs ached and fatigue almost overpowered her as the line clicked and paused. She fixed her eyes between McCabe's truck, the woods, and the garage. The ringing line followed her heart's cadence. Only a few seconds and she could call for help. This is the operator. Operator, there's a man out here with a rifle trying to kill me. Where? Please, you have to call the police before this man kills me. I'm placing the call now. Oh, God. Thank God. What is your name and where are you? My name is Maddie Summers. I rented this house... The front reading room window blew apart and smashed the wallpaper with glass pellets. Maddie threw the receiver upward and dove on her stomach. Several more shots tore apart the rest of the window. She crawled around the staircase banister. The screen door creaked as she parted her way up the runner. Bullets cut the newel post wood inches away from her shoulder. Upstairs, she rolled into the storage room and slammed the tub room door, but turned the lock before she retreated into the bedroom. As she closed the inner door, loud pops like she had heard on the news reports from war zones sounded on the first floor. She marched directly to the dormer as somebody bounded up the stairs. With the next shot, the tub room door slammed against the bathroom wall. She unlocked the window and pushed it up. The rifle butt burst through the bedroom door panels. Her legs swung up as she kicked the window screen onto the porch roof. Then she sailed into the wet air bounced erratically, scraping off the cedar roof shingles, and careened over the edge. She braced her legs and hit the muddy grass. In the foggy darkness, she limped away. Shots from somewhere in the house ricocheted off the cliff rocks. She dove down and inched her way along the ledge as the bullets chipped the stone. The ocean waves, smashing the jagged boulders below, sent uncontrollable anxiety racing through her body. Bright headlights exploded in the fog as McCabe's truck started. She leaped to her feet, struggling to beat the truck across the rock slab. The tires spun in the gravel. As she gazed at the distant lighthouse beacon, her soggy sneaker caught the loose rocks, and she fell, scraping her arms and face as she rolled down the escarpment. She sensed the advancing truck as she flipped over and became airborne above the sea below. She hit the lower ledge with a force pushing the air out of her body. Her chin and arms stung with blood as she lay dazed above the tidal basin. The huge truck wheel skidded above. Somehow she stirred and clawed the craggy edge. Her swollen ankle throbbed and was probably broken. The air came back to her lungs as the truck headlights shined over the upper rocks and into the mist-sprayed bay. The truck door opened. Somebody paced back and forth along the ledge and projected a shadow in the headlights' glare. Rifle fire erupted, pinging the rocks around her. She would have to continue down this rocky trail, but walking it seemed impossible with her ankle immobilized. Less than two feet of ledge separated her from a fifty-foot drop to the rocks and sea below. She started down at a steep angle, on her belly, pressing her palms into the stony protrusions. 
but she had an overwhelming sensation. Her feet would flip over her head and she would fall into the sea. Through the fog, the smashing waves taunted her as she used her upper body strength to move diagonally across the cliff. The surf, spraying her face, produced a salty residue in her mouth, and gravel, as if a delayed message from above, trickled down the rocky dome as her arms weakened. On the wider protrusion, she turned herself upright, but her ankle pulsed in pain. More stones toppled over the top, and she braced herself against the rocks. Through the fog, the faster-moving clouds raced by the vague outline of the full moon. Clearing fog meant the moon would light the cliffs and the beach below. Gripping the rocks, she hobbled along the ledge, using it as a brace. The sea's roar shifted, but the steady scraping continued behind her on the rocky trail. Twenty feet below, the sands appeared through the moonlight fog. She neared the beach below, but the trail ended, and she had to turn and descend the final ten feet along the cliffs. She leaped into the sands, but her ankle seemed to burst apart as she slid onto her belly. The headlights were gone, but the moon's brightness shined through the haze, and the cold, stiff winds blew across the bay. Maddie stood and dragged her leg over the sand, aware of the long stretch of beach extending miles to the river and to the lighthouse berm. With the dissipating fog, she would have to head for the marshes. Chapter 23 She had cut a hundred-yard trail in the sand when McCabe's voice echoed down the cliffs. Maddie stopped and turned, trying to balance on her good leg. Maddie, I'm back here! He knows I'm here now! She wanted to call back, but wondered, as the moon glowed hazy through the rapidly moving bay clouds, whether he could see her on the beach. Why would he call out if he had the gun? Unless he simply wanted to plug her off. Her moonlight shadow traced the sands as she veered toward the tall, dark reeds, now visible to her left. Maddie, He smashed my head! She looked over her shoulder as she hobbled from the beach onto the grassy sand, about thirty feet from the furrowing reeds and grasses. The thin fog lingered near the top of the cliffs and surrounding trees. Her face tightened when she saw the escarpment trail above the moon-painted surf. The crack of the rifle traveled quickly down the beach. A second shot scattered the dirt close by. She fell onto the wet sand but managed to crawl toward the marshes. Another volley broke the night air. I'm not firing, Maddie. He has my rifle. Maddie slithered into a wet, stinky marsh pool and disappeared like an animal into the high reeds. The salt stung her every abrasion as she quickly stood in the cold water. Silver light coated the thin reeds. She splashed through the water, pushing back the reeds, and pictured McCabe sitting on the reverse chair back at the house. Now he would have to call her every few minutes and after a lull, the rifle fire would accelerate from the beach, spraying the reeds. Her stamina fading, and her ankles swollen and locked, Maddie slogged along with her eyes half open. Only the persistent breakers to her right muffled the sound of the water swishing between the reeds as she charted an indefinite course toward the lighthouse beacon. For fifteen minutes, she lay on her back, knees propped up, on a raised chunk of trampled straw grass. The clearing around the reed tops revealed a sweep of autumn stars across the moon glow's blue-black sky. 
wind-chilled air settled into her soaked jeans and jersey, and she shivered continuously. Having removed her sneaker, she kept her inflated ankle in the cold water. She hadn't heard McCabe's voice nor the rifle for some time, and the overturning breakers allowed her to estimate the distance from shore. But the river and the highway bridge beyond the incinerator was still miles away. While she listened to the reeds rubbing and flapping in the breeze, Maddie sensed movement in the stagnant, estuary waters. She rolled on her side and anchored herself with her good arm, looping her right arm over her hip as she pivoted on her good ankle. Cupping her ears, she faced the cliffs, now looming behind the reeds like a silver behemoth several miles back. She was certain now that someone had wandered through the reeds and into the estuary waters. With no place to turn and not wanting to attract undue attention, she descended onto her miniature straw grass island and lay on her back again. John, the gambler, would have liked the odds, not favoring the attacker. The reeds stretched into the woods, but it was unrealistic to think that the killer would cross her sprawled form. The odds did not reassure her as something continuously sunk into the adjacent waters rose up and dripped additional water drops back to the surface. For nearly an hour, he circled. A shadowy figure finally emerged through the moonlit reeds. The glistening moonlight reflected off the rifle's shiny metal barrel, pointed skyward. When he passed, Maddie lay down under the stars and contemplated heading back to the beach. Without full mobility, she couldn't run along the sand and would have to prod slowly through the swampy morass while listening for the killer. As she struggled to her feet and stepped into the water, her ankle pain sharpened. Hours had passed since she left the killer's choking grasp in the upstairs bedroom. She counted her steps and slid like a boat through the water, never lifting up her foot until she encountered the thickening mud or a straight stretch of packed mush. Some distance away, the reeds rustled, and the stillness was broken by the deliberate sound of someone navigating the estuary waters. She stopped and maintained her balance on her left foot. He was close enough now to hear his breathing. As she looked skyward at the moon, now almost directly overhead, she turned slightly to gain a better position, but the hamstring in her good leg tightened to a rounded fist-sized muscle mass. With no support, she lost her balance, fell back, and splashed in the water. The rifle fired, and as if pursued by a monstrous creature in a horror film, Maddie crawled through the swampy goop. Splashes grew louder behind her as the reeds whipped her face and she scrambled to her feet. McCabe appeared through the reeds. The pain pierced her ankle as she rolled backward. Maddie, I didn't know it was you! She waited for his voice again, but the gun flashed as she turned and again bullets tore up the marsh. She did not see McCabe and resumed her steady movement through the cold water, away from the beach berm. The rifle fire ceased and she counted her steps. Once she was just a few hundred feet away from the beach, she stood on her good foot. The incinerator, matted gray in the moonlight, was less than a mile away now, situated atop a sandy spread. The river reflected back moonbeams in long changing waves. Although she couldn't see the bridge leading to Rexford, she remembered the incinerator was not very far from the highway. 
Through the reeds in the distant lighthouse beacon, red and blue lights swung haphazardly from the highway. Now it was a matter of getting through the marsh alive. The cops were less than fifteen minutes away. McCabe, or whoever had the gun, would not dare fire now. She cut through the cold water like a cross-country skier. Even at this distance, the cruiser lights skimmed the reed tops. When she reached the next land clump, a cruiser pulled next to the tall incinerator. Once positioned on the sandy spit, she could now crawl to safety behind the incinerator. The open police channel crackled on and off, echoing throughout the estuary. The marshes muddied as she approached the spit, the water curving back inland. Still hidden in the moonlight reeds, she limped through the mushy grass, but she was cautious about calling out, lest the killer pinpoint her position. Another police cruiser, headlights moving up and down with each dirt road bump, raced toward the incinerator. Like a marathon runner, she kept her pace, enduring the swollen ankle, and with each short, quick breath, was more certain that she might get out alive. The beach curved near the marsh to her left. She was only a hundred yards away from the open incinerator door. The cruiser's spotlight swung across the sand, and cops with flashlights swarmed around the spit. She now could easily emerge several hundred feet ahead. Several quick pops sounded on the beach over her right shoulder. She stopped, crouched, and turned, still under the protection of the reeds. Someone shouted out orders, and the battle-ready battalion of cops leaped onto the sands while others assumed positions around the incinerator. Loud grunting, the sound of fists smacked solid against human flesh. The barrage blasted like fireworks for another ten or fifteen seconds. Through the reeds, the breakers spun toward the silver beach, and Dan McCabe's voice boomed in the night. Down here! Down here! Somebody ordered two cops forward. Maddie pushed through the reeds toward the beach and limped over the packed sand. The bay water was broken by a long stretch of white surf breaking about 30 feet offshore. Across a long section of beach, McCabe hovered in the moonlight over a fallen body in the sand. The lighthouse beacon swung from the adjacent hill as the two officers ran at a full clip toward McCabe. When they reached him, one of them bent down and checked the body. McCabe pointed to the rifle on the beach and motioned back to the cliffs. More officers arrived, and a low level of conversation hummed on the beach. As she started forward, she hobbled, her one sneaker still oozing with water, onto the drier sands. McCabe talked with one of the officers and held his shoulder. The moonlight exposed a bloody gash above his swollen right eye. More blood had soaked into his jersey. When he saw Maddie, he ran over and held her arms. Maddie! God, you're all right! McCabe! What happened? I'm sorry. McCabe turned as a gray-haired officer approached with a clipboard in his hand. He smashed my head back at the junction box. I chased him but fell unconscious behind the house. I'm Officer Jacobson. Can my men get anything for you? My ankle, I think it's broken. Who's on the beach? Jacobson pulled out a short wave from his clip. I need medical help here. I have a male with extensive, maybe life-threatening head injuries and a female with a possible fractured ankle. A voice acknowledged Jacobson through the distorted open channel. Mrs. Summers, I think you should know we have bad news. 
You killed him, McCabe. No. She broke free and dragged her ankle across the sand, moving with the other officers. Pushing the one officer's shoulders, she looked down the beach. Raymond Snowden, in combat fatigues, his mouth hanging open in the moonlight glaze, lay motionless on the berm. Maddie turned back to McCabe's battered face. His eyes focused on her with an unknown sadness. Then she peered at the officers going in and out of the incinerator. What the hell is going on here? McCabe stepped in front of Jacobson. Raymond Snowden was in a poker game with John at the Surfside. For some reason, maybe they were both drunk. They came back to the Fairbanks house. There was a pack of cards on the mantel. I didn't put it together until you described John, Maddie. Well, that's conjecture, Dan, said Jacobson. I don't think so, Jake. The tie class? Maddie. Maddie gazed at the imposing incinerator coated with silver light. Where's John? Jacobson's voice became official again. Snowden left a letter in his sister's mailbox. Your husband ran up a $20,000 poker tab. Snowden said he killed your husband, but we don't know where. He burned the body in the incinerator. And then he came after you. I'm sorry, Mrs. Summers. Maddie winced and buried her face in her hands. She cried openly and then followed the moonlight's bright trail across the matted ocean up to the far gray cliffs. Even at this distance, she heard the surf smash the rocks. Slowly, her tear-laced skin tightened. She panned back to the incinerator, and the lighthouse beam caught her moist eyes. McCabe put his hand on her shoulder. Maddie, I'll get your things and get a flight for you. She swallowed once, still staring at the incinerator. Each one of the officers gawked at her. She saw Jacobson's sturdy face, glanced toward the exchange house, and then finally stared at McCabe's wound. I'd say you and I need to see a doctor, McCabe. We can get you both to Portland, said Jacobson, motioning them toward the cruiser. The beach and the cliffs spread behind her as McCabe supported her on his good arm. You need to get away from this place, Maddie. No, I'm staying. Uh, Are you sure? I'm sure that you and I came real close to dying out there, McCabe. She looked into his steady brown eyes. Come on, let's get in the cruiser. You need to get some shoes and we need to change our clothes. McCabe put his arm under her shoulder and helped her toward Jacobson's cruiser. Maddie had an odd, sober smile as she passed the incinerator. They're probably waiting for us at the hospital. I think we both have injuries that need attention. Partner. I like the way this book ended, twisting and turning along the main shore, if I do say so myself. Hope you did too, and hope you enjoyed the rest of Exchange House. Next time we travel to another house, Beach House, along Chesapeake Bay. Mary Ellen brings her children on boat to Sabin's Island. Through her binoculars, she is stunned to see an orange Mustang in her beach house driveway. Her husband, Tony, is alone painting the house, and the car belongs to a 23-year-old provocative woman, Sue Lee. Kel, a retired police officer, helps her investigate the mischief. Sue Lee's presence leads to three deaths, and then a fourth, prompting Kel to unravel her background. Mary Ellen finds herself alone, 
in the beach house to face a possible killer as she fights for her own life. Join me next time. Maybe I'll take the train down to the Chesapeake and maybe not. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com, or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.